This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode 122 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. Thanks for joining me as I'm recording this. It is March of 2019. I didn't do an episode in February of 2019 because I'm a slack ass. We're back. Welcoming back for his third episode. It's a thrill for me to have him back because he brings great conversation. The wonderful leader and singer-songwriter and guitar player of the Bondi Cigars and the Shane Pacey Trio, Mr. Shane Pacey. Welcome back to love that album hi morris and it's great to be back and it's great to know that you need me i do need you you're my sally field i need you <laughs> i really need you we had a good time last time i think it was in november when yourself myself and jeff perlman spoke about xtc and, yeah uh, tonight's album is you know, sort of a good companion piece we'll get to that in a moment yeah but what's happening with you at the moment and the shane pacey trio and the bondi cigars well the same thing for anybody who's in the kind of blue scene we just it's about one gig to the next and looking forward to the next big gig which thankfully in the cigars we get to do lots of festivals so yeah and stuff like that and just the next high profile gig and then lots of smaller gigs in between to sort of keep the fingers going and it's always about gigs i've not got any plans to do any more recording just yet but as i move into this phase of my musical life it's the gigs that interest me the most sure now i think i saw you post something during the week about is it a new blues festival that's starting up in new south wales no that's one that's been going for a while they call it the sydney well they're 
did the Sydney Blues Festival, but it's out in Windsor, which is sort of like having a Melbourne Blues Festival at Geelong. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's it's a good one. It's a, they're good people. Yeah, so we've got a few festivals coming up, and that's with the trio, actually. So um, okay. look, always looking forward to those. They're not only for the playing, but for catching up with people who generally you just don't get to see. So do you find that you get a lot of return patrons who come to see you every time you play? Yeah, we do. Thankfully, that's the case. The cigars especially, because we have, we've had so many different errors. We're like one of those bands that people come and say, oh, yeah, I like that particular error. You know, and you're going, error? What? Shut up. <laughs> I don't have an error. You know, but, but, it's, but it's true. We have had errors. People have their sort of favourite things or favourite lineups, and that's just the way it is. And you just got to be graceful about it all. You know, you, you really think that what's happening now is the the thing but to, to, to some people that's not the case I'm yeah. sure if I talk to Glenn Tillerbrook I'll talk to him about this error <laughs> right <laughs> you know and I'm sure he'd be equally as irritated by it <laughs> Let's talk about what it is that we're going to talk about. We decided that we would talk about the third album by the band Squeeze, or UK Squeeze, if that's the way you want to go, called Argy Bargy. Now, I decided this was one I wanted to discuss on the show because it was the final album that featured Jules Holland in the first incarnation of Squeeze. They split up, they restarted again, and then he joined them again for a whole bunch of albums before going off in a half again. But I think this is an important album in many ways so we'll get to all that sort of stuff yeah we'll go have a quick break i might go grab myself a glass of water and then we'll be back to talk about squeeze and we'll have a bit of an argy bargy or hopefully we won't have a bit of an argy <laughs> but uh, you're listening to love that album podcast episode 122 morris here in melbourne shane just on the outskirts of sydney we'll be back shortly <laughs> Hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Okay, everybody, pay attention. This is an important message. I haven't got long. I wanted an hour, but people have been messing me about all day. I'm going to tell you that if you don't buy this record, you'll be making the gravest mistake of your life. You're saying to yourself, what grave mistake will I be making? I'm going to tell you what grave mistake you'll be making. You'll be missing out on listening to the most incredible band. No, no, not all band. Let's say the most incredible conglomerate of geniuses ever to put wax their discs on record. I want you to go out and buy this record. I'm not going to tell you who it's by yet. I'm going to tell you some more about it. It's got the most fantastic guitar, fantastic keyboards, incredible drums, interesting bass, best lyrics you've ever heard since Bob Dylan, Randy Newman and Mark's put together. I want to tell you that if you don't buy this, you probably won't improve your life by any means whatsoever. And the name of the band, you're waiting for it, I'm going to tell you now, brace yourself, it's Squeeze. And the name of the record is RG Bargy, not Aggie Baggy as some people will call it. People who call it that generally didn't go to school and are fairly stupid. So it's RG Bargy on A&M Records and Tapes. Available at Listening Booth, We Three Records, Peaches and Sam Goodies. Welcome back to episode 122 of Love That Album. Morris over here, Shane over there. And we're not going to have an RG Bargy, but we're going to discuss 
that very British name, Argy Bargy, and yep. probably we'll be discussing just how British this band is. We're talking about Squeeze, and their third album came out, I think, in February of 1980. They're the band which I think have been described as singing about dark themes with very bright music. Yeah. With the exception of, of uh, their first reunion album, Cozy Fan Tutti Frutti, which is a dark album with dark music, but <laughs> that's a, a, another conversation for another time. So... Mm. I guess the best way to start this would be to ask Shane, what is your history with Squeeze? I think you said that you actually saw them in their initial incarnation. Well, I didn't know much about them. I think I might have heard up the junction. which was a, a weird hit uh, in many ways because it didn't really have a chorus, which mm. <laughs> it's a bit, for that time, incredibly melodic. So I kind of liked them, but I didn't know much about them. And they were at the Bondi Lifesaver, so I went along and didn't know any of the songs. But it was what I was interested in at the time, which was short, punchy songs, very much in the coming from the Elvis Costello school or Joe Jackson school that I was. It was kind of right up my street but the main thing I remember was the drummer Gilson was just bashing the shit out of the drums and just <laughs> screaming at the band to play louder and faster and harder and I guess he was on, under the influence of something because he was just, his eyes were bugging out and <laughs> it was amazing that's my main memory because I didn't really know many of the songs I've seen footage from those early days and he always seems to be playing the drums wearing what looked like a pair of golf gloves so, <laughs> yeah. so that's probably so he didn't you know, get all these blisters all over his hands so yeah indicating a very hard hitter yeah I think he had a lot more experience than they had I think they were a lot younger than he was I think he'd done the traps he'd I think he'd like played in Germany and toured with well-known people and so I think he just felt he was the driver of the band in many ways and then I bought I didn't get their first album the one with the bodybuilder on the front I, yeah. I might have got that later mm. I got cool for cats again I still thought they were a bit of a kind of a gimmick band a bit I suppose like a lighter version of Ian Dury and the Blockheads in some ways with that cockney <laughs> kind of right. half talking thing but you know I think yeah I think we might discuss Christopher's vocals a bit later but that's where I thought they were and then that album's got some great songs on it as well a bit, bit of a muffled kind of production I thought then I got this one and I, the, the production had stepped up a, a lot and the songs were just snappier and yeah I, this is where I really hooked onto them a lot and really started to like them like every other kid that was listening to Top 40 Radio, but I remember hearing them, so it's probably on 3XY, and watching them on Countdown, seeing yeah. the film clip, Cool for Cats. The Indians send signals from the rocks above the pass. The cowboys take position in the bushes and the grass. The score is with the corporal, she is tied against the tree. She doesn't mind the language, it's the beating she don't need. She lets loose all the horses when the corporal is asleep. I think it's somewhat of an irony that the two songs that they're most known for in Australia would be the two songs that their regular lead singer had no real part of. Well, that's it, yeah. Call for yeah. Cats, done by Chris Difford, and Tempted, done yeah. by two-album keyboardist at, in different eras, Paul Carrot. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I bet that delights Glenn Tillerbrook no end. <laughs> <laughs> 
this was the album that definitely hooked me in fully because it, it sort of gave an indication about what they could really do. What I like to do occasionally on the show is sort of put the album in context into perspective what else was around. So, you know, here we are listening to this and thinking, wow, this is from a golden age of late 70s, early 80s pop. Yeah. Here are some of the other songs that were big at the time. And I'm quoting from a New Zealand top 40 chart I found online from yeah. September 1979. Okay, so the big hit singles at the time. I Was Made For Loving You by Kiss. <laughs> Some Girls by Racy. I wonder where they are. My Sharona by The Neck. And anyone who knows me knows that I worship at the Church of The Neck. ELO, not their finest moment in Don't Bring Me Down. Pop Music by M. Now, do you remember this one? Born to be Alive by Patrick Hernandez. I certainly do. Anybody who was playing in bands that used to play in places where they, the disco was on in the breaks would, of course, know that song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, may you never have to hear it again. Uh, a songwriter who you mentioned not two, three minutes ago, Joe Jackson. Is she really going out with him? Look over there. Where? Bad Girls by Donna Summer. Mm, uh, good song. Rock. <laughs> Roxanne by the Police. And a song which I didn't know for many years was a cover, Hanging on the Telephone by Blondie. Yeah. I love their cover, I think, more mm. than the original. I've forgotten who did the original, but I think I actually... It's Liam Le- Steinberg's band, whatever they were called. Mm. They weren't a big band, I don't think. It might have been a, like a one-pit wonder or something. But... Yeah, one of those American new wave bands that, that were too early for the Americans, you know. What really struck me about Cool for Cats, which came out at the same time of those songs, besides it being such a fun melody, was just how British it was. I mean, it was obviously Chris Difford's accent. Yeah. But you had all these expressions, which us here in the Commonwealth, we got from all the TV shows. Yeah. Getting lines like, it's funny how the missus always looks the bleeding same. Meanwhile, at the station, there's a couple of lightly lads. Yeah. Uh, plus references to the Sweeney, which I was a big well, fan yeah, of. Well, I think that line about the missus always looking the same, it follows the line about the Sweeney because it was almost the same three actresses that always used to play the criminal's <laughs> wives. Uh, right. One of one of the actresses was Lydia LaPlante, who, who ended up becoming a massive writer. A bit of trivia for you. I should be doing a uh, podcast about British crime shows of the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Well, that song, you could actually reduce it to being a music hall song, even with the chord changes. You know, it could be roll out the barrel or, you know, have a banana kind of songs if you don't have that vaguely funky backing it, yeah, it, could, yeah, yeah. it could have come straight from you know Max Miller's music hall repertoire well we know that the Kinks basically were a music hall band yeah. dressed up with a rock rhythm section so mm. I think that's probably a fair point that you make there well I think we discussed this with the XDC I think it's actually a, a common thread that runs through English pop and rock it just keeps reappearing it, it's reappeared with blur maybe pop and rock of a type I mean there are you know, some bands yeah, who, sure. I mean, you, you're never going to be able to say the you know band like that came a couple of years ago like Spandau Ballet had that sort of thing squeeze they didn't start out like that you know they were no. I mean, that first album that you mentioned the one with the bodybuilder that had experiments with synth take me I'm yours <laughs> I've come across the 
take me, I'm yours, and then later, goodbye, girl. I thought, they're a synth-pop group. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think John Cale might have talked him into that. I'd, I'm not sure how keen they would have been on it, because they dumped him after that and got John Wood. Um, yeah, but by the time they got to Call for Cats, I mean, they were still sort of like doing synthy openers, I think, on, on yeah, that one sure. as well. Because he found Tutti Frutti was full of Lindrums and yeah. synths <laughs> there, so... Uh, but I think the first album that I went and bought was Singles 45s and Under. Uh, oh, yeah. when when that came out and yeah, it was after that that I sort of went back to the regular albums or some of them anyway if someone says to you tell me how do I be a good songwriter you're just going to say alright these guys have written the book just to, every song on this is mm. a gem every song on this is a master class in great songwriting and we read a lot about songwriters who say the song just came to my mind or sometimes I write the lyrics first sometimes I write the music first every interview that I've ever heard with those guys who said the same thing Difford wrote a set of lyrics and Tilbrook wrote the music it was a definite role partnership there are some songwriters who say oh it's a misconception sometimes I did one and sometimes my partner did the other the line's not blurred with them or it's like uh, Elton John and Bernie Taupin yeah it's it's clearly marked who did what. Actually, I heard an interview with Difford and Tilbrook from, I don't know, maybe the last five, six years, and they made that very comparison, you know, Elton John yeah. and Bernie Taupin, but they said that the difference with Chris Difford was that he was a guitarist as well, so yeah. maybe he was, was a... able to think musically, but he basically said, well, I'd just write these words, and I had no idea what Tilbrook was going to do with them. And he said it was always a delight to hear what he would do. Yeah. I read, um, I don't know if you've read it, Difford's autobiography. No, I haven't, no. I think it's different now, but for those years, his guitar's not on any of the albums, and on stage, it was turned down. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, he's not, the guitar's more of a prop. Uh, he oh, did really? sing a bit. Yeah. I think it might be, I think he plays a bit now, because he's probably got a bit better, but he, he himself says that he, he just wasn't a very good player, even a, a rhythm player. So if you, if you see any live clips of them, you'd be hard-pressed to hear it. Oh, my goodness. Guitar. Next, you'll be telling me that Brian Wilson doesn't have his piano plugged in on stage nowadays. Just, just don't <laughs> well, tell me that. I'm not going to burst you up all about that one. That's, he still plays. It's still plugged in. It's Bob, yeah, and, Bob, and Bob Dylan's piano is plugged in as well. <laughs> this might be my last episode. I'm heartbroken. <laughs> you thought all those snappy guitar solos on this album were all Chris Difford, didn't you? Well, I did, you know. Look, actually, you know, here's the thing. When I went to see Glenn Tilbrook all those years ago, like in the early noughts, mm. I never really sort of had any conceptions either way as to who was doing the guitar solos. And then on that night, and I realised, oh my goodness, you're not only one of the really great British singers, mm. you're a real guitarist's guitarist. And if yeah, was, he's amazing. If there was any yeah. serious doubt, I think like about a third of the way in the show, he said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to do a cover now. And he did Voodoo Child. Oh, right. Yeah. And I thought, oh, just by the end of that song, there was no doubt in the audience that we were looking at a guy who, if he'd never sung a note, if he'd never been an A1 composer, yeah. He, he still would have had a place in history as a fantastic guitar player, but that yeah. was not the role of Squeeze to be putting out lots of solos. They were definitely a no. a band, a cohesive thing. They, as I like to say so often on this show, worshipped the song. They did. In fact, of course, there are great guitar solos littered all the way through their work, And but what they all have in common is that they all serve the chord sequence of the song. Right. 
They're not wailing Stevie Ray Vaughan type solos or whatever, whoever was big in Britain at the time. They're, they're definitely structured around the chords mm. and some of their chord sequences, we'll probably get to it, are odd. <laughs> so, yes, very much. So, so you can't just play your pentatonic scale like most of us would do. He couldn't do it, so he had to structure them like a jazz player in a way. Right. Yeah, I, actually, I hadn't sort of thought about uh, there being a jazz connection, but definitely I had been thinking these are not predictable chord structures, no. and yet he still makes it sound, from a compositional perspective, really so effortless. Yeah, that's the trick. Like trying to not- go for a few minutes in the direction of Chris Difford as a lyricist and yeah. even if you burst my bubble here thinking that you know maybe he wasn't so much of a guitar player at the time but <laughs> there was no way that Tilbrook was going to kick out a guy who could write a lyric as good as him and it's probably fair to say that when they went solo and did their own albums in their own names mm. Tilbrook proved to be actually a really really good lyricist but yeah. I'm sure he'd spent a lot of time working out what it was that made Chris Difford so good. He'd been to the Difford school of lyric writing, and I put a lot of Difford's brilliance as a lyricist. He, he must be so well read. He writes like an author. He does every yeah. song. I mean, think about it. every song on this album, and probably every other album that they did in that period tells a story. It's not "Hey, I love you, baby," or no. "This is what I think about the shitty state of the world." I mean, they could do that while telling a tale. Yeah. Um, Look, for me, uh, in the last. Say, 30 years there's only been really three great British lyric writers and that's him Elvis Costello and Richard Thompson I'd put him equally to those two except Difford really writes about a world that's very specific whereas Richard Thompson will write about anything he'll write about Baghdad or you know a motorbike or he'll let his muse take him wherever same with Costello in a way but Christopher Wright writes about London and he writes about people who he knows, basically, and a very specific part of London, I think. Yep. It's, very, it's, very, it's very telescoped, and that's what makes it so brilliant. It's like taking a, a forcep and just digging right into it. You could, could tell right from the start that it's all about detail. That's what puts him in that rarefied space, that rarefied air that Ray Davies occupies. Yeah. My three of the Holy Trinity are going to be you know, the Beatles, the Who, and the kinks yeah uh, but davies as a lyricist of course he, he rules both those top two for me yeah but for me yeah i guess i meant post those guys yeah no 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 i i, yeah. I under, no i understood that point i understood yeah. that point um uh, but yeah i probably put Difford in the ray davies space sure absolutely he's, he's in that yeah he's um, an i mean ray davies is, is a london guy too mm. um probably not even quite as specific as Difford though i think ray davies could he could Put himself into the place of a man sit, sitting in a st- in a mansion, uh, you know, uh, and, and stuff like that occasionally. But he was going to be an English writer when he was not allowed to go to America or be part of that whole scene, that post '67 explosion yes. of British bands. He, he couldn't say, yeah, I think he did decide to just be British and write about British things. Which, Lazy Sunday afternoon, and yeah, Difford's definitely in that kind of. You put him right next to him, you know what, what Davies has going for him as well, because he writes the melodies as well. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I think sort of links all those guys as great lyricists is their sharp observation of human behavior and Difford has something of what I guess you might say is like a social realist 
And even though I have certain problems with him as a person, I'm going to compare Chris Difford with Ken Loach as a film director. Difford writes about the same sorts of people that Ken Loach Mm. will make a film about. And Up the Junction is a song that Ken Loach could have made as a film. The beauty about the working relationship between, say, Difford and Tilbrook is it musically sounds fun. It's so deceptive. They have one of these up-tempo, happy-sounding melodies, and you have to like listen to it a couple of times and think, oh, hang on, should I have been dancing to that? When you listen to a, a social realist song like The River by Bruce Springsteen, you know right yeah. from the outset, he said, the music is going to tell you this is sad. Of Up course, the junction, yeah. they're saying, I demand that you listen to what we're actually singing here. Well, imagine if Christopher was the lyricist for Joy Division, we wouldn't be here because we'd have, <laughs> we'd have both killed ourselves in the 80s. Love would have torn him apart. <laughs> Look, I know that there are I... a lot of people who I'm friends with have said... I'm not a lyric person. You know, I prefer mm. music, which, uh, look, you know, to each their own, that's not the way I go. I, I look at the song as a package and the lyrics are a strong part of it. That's not to say that a great song can't have a shitty lyric. You know, yeah, that's right. There's, there's plenty. I'm not going to quote by name because I might get myself into trouble. But there are some great songs, but lyrics shouldn't be confused with poetry. No. You know, the, the rhyme and meter. And as long as it's not stupidly embarrassing, an yeah. ordinary lyric can still be lifted into the realm of greatness by what the music does with it but in the case of you know Diffin and Tilbrook it was the perfect storm I think yeah that's right So we already touched on the fact that as a band, they were very, very well. Should still say they are because you know they exist in name. It's you know different than Tilbrook, yeah. and I think basically Tilbrook's solo band, the Fluffers, which I think, given their obsession with genitalia <laughs> in both Squeeze and Tilbrook solo songs, I, I think the Fluffers is a great and appropriate name. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. We spoke previously on the XTC episode, and I think it equally applies here, but they're both very British, but they both sound quite different. But there's no questioning the fact that both of these bands, where they came from, no one's thinking for a second that they're American bands of the same era. They were coming yeah. out. And it's, it's unusual because I can't really think of many American bands. You're probably going to come up with a million, but mm. just on the spur of the moment, I can't think about American bands, certainly not of that era, that are singing about local concerns the same way that Squeeze did. I mean, you might have said, as a Canadian example, you know, earlier on, that the band were singing, you know, maybe about local things, but or they sound like a band that your parents or grandparents would have loved. They sang about Southern America. It was a bit weird. They only had one American in the band, and they got most of their kind of view of the world from Levon, because he was the only American, and he's the only Southerner. Yeah, but there weren't there. The only thing I can think of is Springsteen, who who did write about right. um, New Jersey and 
but yeah, you're right. It's not. It, I, I can't think of any really. I think it's more the realm of Americana, um, oh. and you know, a lot of the songwriters, maybe in country music, will be sure. writing about local concerns. But as a top forty artist, it was those bands who we mentioned who were popular at the same time. Any of the yeah. any of the American ones. I mean, you know, Kiss or Van Halen bands, especially. I think most American bands there weren't very many intellectual bands. I mean, you had people like Burt Bacharach writing very pointed, oh, well, Hal David writing very pointed lyrics where they were very specific. These little micro-dramas like uh, 24 Hours from Tulsa and bands-wise, I, I don't think they were, I can't think of any. You've, you've stumped me there. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah. Both Squeeze and Ecstasy, are, to me, they're bands who used punk as a way to come forward because punk itself you weren't supposed to be allowed to play very well and you weren't supposed to know very many chords and the the lyrics were meant to be political but chants really and i think they both of those bands sort of i think we spoke about it a little bit with xdc they're hooked onto it by making their songs really short and um fast especially especially in the early days and then their prog roots started appearing very quickly, I think. Yeah, especially XTC, but but Squeeze too. There's some, even some, on there's some stuff on this album that I can hear, just bits of yes. And, you know. Oh really? Okay. Oh, I think not so much in. I mean, there's no long songs or, or long uh, instrumental passages or anything like that. Just just in the adventurousness and the you know, weird chord changes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they were from that era. They weren't from the punk era. I think they just wanted to get past that as quickly as possible and become what they wanted to be. But as we discussed, I think, in the XTC episode, you know, XTC and Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson mm. and you know, Squeeze and who knows how many other bands that we can't think of quite at this moment. Do you remember Any Trouble? They were a, they were a favourite band of mine who were very oh, similar. No, uh, yeah, they had a, a couple of hits. Look them up. They're good. Okay. <laughs> but like all these acts, they were saying they love the energy of punk. But you know, yeah, especially like right. someone like Joe Jackson, who was you know, getting a degree at the Royal London Academy of Music, yeah. was never going to downplay it. But yeah. he liked that guitar sound. And yeah. even if you know, the Sex Pistols said, look, you know, we're just... We're having a little bit of fun here. I mean, well, it's a wider story than that. But if they'd gone mm. and said, like, on the side, we're doing this to kick a few bums in the establishment, go do what you want, but take the great spirit of it. Of course, yeah. you know, then the 80s came along with this overproduction. Thank you very oh, yeah. much, Phil Collins and In the Air tonight. And <laughs> fucking gated drum sound. Yeah. But for a time... It seemed that, I don't know whether the punks liked it, but the punk energy on those artists who we just mentioned, it was invigorated by you know, what were the real punk bands. I'd say that they were opportunistic in a way and um, hooked onto it, just taking some elements of it, like even just the look a lot of the time. Sure. You know, the skinny ties and the all that kind of thing. Yeah, because even even very early in the... Because going back and listening to that first Squeeze album, there's still Songcraft there. Goodbye Girl is... You could strip it of its synth and silly drum sound and make it into a great pop, squeeze-style pop single. Yeah. Yes. Uh, It's a, it's a great song. It's probably one of their... It's just unfortunate that it sounds like that. It's, it's it, well, that that, uh, <laughs> that drum machine does date it, unfortunately. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah no, I, I definitely see your point. I mean, 
I wonder whether in this current incarnation of Squeeze, whether they actually do that song as a full band accompaniment rather than... Yeah, it'd be interesting. Let's bring up the B word. Mm -hmm. We we can say the Lennon and McCartney word if we want to say the B word. I've always sort of thought that it was the height of lazy journalism to say Difford and Tilbrook were the new Lennon and McCartney. No, they were the new Difford and Tilbrook. I mean, okay, look, I can appreciate, you know, comparison for individual songs based on a progression or an instrumental style is certainly a valid thing. I mean, I do it all the time on this show, but maybe I'm just as lazy as those journalists. But uh, the, the syllogistic logic of... You know, the Beatles could write a hooky pop melody. Squeeze can write a hooky pop melody. Therefore, yeah. Squeeze is like the Beatles. Uh, it's syllogistically wrong. No, it's it's only the fact that there there were pop bands who wrote clever songs, and I, I think it mainly comes from the fact that Glenn Tilbrook's voice is pitched right between John Lennon and Paul McCartney, as in its sound. It's his own voice, of course, but I think when you first hear it, you can hear both of them. And I think as he went on, it just became more of his own voice. But it definitely has both of those elements. So as with many things, I think with people, it's more the singing. They certainly weren't Badfinger, who right. just sounded like the Beatles. You know? <laughs> but yeah, that's that's all I can think of. And, and a willingness to try all kinds of things, which probably became more apparent on East Side Story, I think. You know, um, right. That was something I was going to ask you. I mean, like when we spoke about XTC, we said that over the course of their entire catalogue, there was a progression. Personally, I see Squeeze, the first couple of albums, sort of finding out what do we want to do. And Argy Bargy is sort of like partly on the fence of music that they'd done on the first two albums. And then partly of where they were going because I think by East Side Story I mean I'm not saying every album sounds the same after that but I think they sort of pretty much decided right we want to do this style of melody we want to rely less on electronics although you know, yeah. once again Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity has those Lind drums but it's still pop melodies of a type and yeah. I, I sort of think that it was for me it was less of a development more just no this isn't quite right no there's not what we're yeah. right. right this is what we want and then there were different production styles and different albums but yeah. I don't think they experimented the same way XTC did but I don't no. know, what do you what do you think is that is that I think they or? experiment I think they experimented more with song styles than with sound I think especially on East Side Story I think there's and that might have been Elvis Costello's influence like do it this way try I don't think Tempted would have sounded like that Elvis's suggestion that Paul Carrick do the lead rather than Glenn Tilbrook? Yeah, and it was, I think it, when it started, it was faster, and Elvis got him to play it like an Al Green song, and then I think that suggested, well, why don't you get Paul to sing it, because he's got that kind of voice. I mean, I've seen clips of Tilbrook singing it, and it, <laughs> he struggles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's Paul Carrick's song for sure. He, he nails it. It's an amazing vocal performance. But yeah, I think that album especially, there's songs on there that have string quartet on them, and African drums here and there and all kinds of weird things and the country song labelled with love that's yes. something they've never done before but uh, but there, yeah I think it was just like being eclectic in the style of song they were doing rather than 
sonically. I don't think that they were more interested in just being a classic kind of pop rock band I think, through, yeah, the, through sure. their entire history. I mean, look, I, I guess if you pull out this album, Argy Bargy, which we will get to in a couple of minutes, folks, <laughs> I promise you, you could definitely say, right, this is a different album from, I don't know, for the sake of a play or some fantastic yeah. place or Frank, yeah. you could definitely say, yeah, those, yeah, that's from a different era. They, they, yeah, sure. Some fantastic place doesn't sound stylistically like one of those early albums it sounds a lot more serious a lot more polished and yeah. maybe for all of that as much as it's got some great songs maybe a little less fun than what Arjun yeah. Bhaji is because above all else even though it's got some serious themes on it it does sound musically like a really fun album and yeah. you'd love to have sort of like heard some discussions in the studio at the time mm. just imagine they were having a, having some fun there both Cool for Cats and Arjun Bhaji were both produced by John Wood now, I think that's important because um, John Wood was a folk rock guy, really. He produced the Nick Drake albums, Fairport Convention, right. the incredible string band. He, uh, his studio, Sound Techniques, was the place where they did all of those things. And this is getting towards just before when John Wood packed it all in. Um, mm. I think he just said he didn't like the music the bands were coming with anymore. But he's an important part of those albums because Joe Boyd was supposed to produce the Nick Drake albums, but I think John Wood did. I think I think the story is that Joe Boyd just sat there and read the paper. Those albums sound different to the later ones, especially if you listen to them first. I think you might, I don't know what order you listen to these things in, but the later albums, a lot of them have got that real 80s, early Polish. 90s cut, gla- cut glass kind of sound that's yeah. so pristine. And both Cool for Cats and Ajibaji have a very warm, organic, especially on the drums, sound. And I think that's a lot of that's down to John Wood, uh, because that's, that was his specialty, was getting those. I know that even though albums like Argy Bargy and Cool for Cats, they do have a warmer sound. I 100% agree with you. Yeah. But I, I guess in one way I can sort of think what dates them on a couple of songs at least is when Gilson Lavis, he's doing a fill around the kit and you're thinking, oh, you're playing Roto Toms, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, one's, no one's playing Roto Tom anymore. But. Yeah, Roto Toms and the, the synth, some of the synth sounds definitely date it. But I think they used reasonably sparingly. It still all sound like a five-piece rock band mm. just going through the going through the moves in the studio. And I think they are, they've retained that. The albums where they've used the Lin drums and stuff, they don't do much for me. I might appreciate the songs, but that sound is, isn't one I like very much. Well, I know that I put up a post on the Love That Album Facebook group today just to say, right, well, we're going to be discussing this album tonight, recording the episode. I said that Ajibaji is an album full of dark songs with upbeat melodies, whereas Cosi Fan Tutti Frutti is an album with dark lyrics yeah. and dark melodies. <laughs> and the example I gave was one of the singles, Last Time Forever. Oh yeah, and very much 80s. The, mm. the, uh, the electronic drums in there, the Lynn drums, and someone went and wrote one of my favourite squeeze songs of that era. And look, I struggle to disagree with it because there are some bands where I, I couldn't really sort of connect with at first because of the sound, and then later mm. on I came back and thought, okay, the songwriting 
shines through. Whereas those songs on that album, right from the word go, I thought, oh, I don't like that sound, but Jesus, a good song. Yeah. Although, mind you, once again, there was a Tilbrook Diffid album uh, that mm. they did just between, I think, East Side Story and Cosy Fan Tutti Fruity. Yeah. And I think I listened to that once and that was too much on the electronics. I, I think, yeah, I yeah. didn't like it. They, they, actually, they actually did Sweets from a Stranger before that, then, then oh, disintegrated. Okay. And that's not an album I love either. It, it, it's got a couple of good songs on it. For some reason, I thought that was like in the reunion. Straight after, well, it's about a year after East Side Story. Yeah, and that's where I kind of left them for a while, I think. And I only really dipped my toe in here and there after that. I think we discussed, like, my two favourite squeeze songs. Mm. Some some fantastic places, probably number one. She gave to me a tenderness, her friendship and her love. I see her face from time to time, there in the sky above. We grew up learning as we went, what a voyage our lives could be. It took us to and tempted is number two and yeah that's and then of course there there are lots of others but um that's an amazing song it's mm. just it covers so much ground and it's so musically interesting the beauty about some fantastic place is you know that it comes from a place of sincerity I mean, yeah for those of you who don't know the song that was in dedication to a lady who I don't know if she actually introduced Diffid and Tilbrook or Diffid had put up a sign in a local music shop yeah, saying that's the story. Uh, looking for guitarists to start songwriting partnership and she said you go at you take that up and she yeah. pushed, pushed me. one of those stories so um, yeah. she's obviously held in a lot of love and a lot of high regard and because it had Diffid as a writer as a lyricist yeah uh, it, it, there's nothing at all twee about it it's just no it's a beautiful lyric it's a real, real heartbreaker yeah. especially when you do know the story but even if you don't, it's you can right. tell what it's all about, yeah. And I think that's uh, with Pete Thomas on drums, not Gilson Lavis. Yeah. So. yeah, I think that Gilson was long gone with Jules by then. Playing in the uh, the Jules Holland Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, yeah. <laughs> which I had the pleasure of seeing in 1996 at the Prince Charles Charity Trust concert. Wow. And uh, <laughs> on the same bill, I think, is The Who, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, and my toilet break of Alanis Morissette, but all uh, right, well, yeah, so that would have been my toilet break too. Yeah, God bless, uh, God love her. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I might edit that bit out. I don't want to upset the Alanis Morissette fans out there. Let's talk about the album itself. Yes, yeah. that's what we're here for. But we wanted to set up the scene about what we love about the band and what we think makes them absolutely special. And one of the themes on this album, and really, I guess, a recurring theme throughout a lot of their music, is well, I guess, people in love, which is not an uncommon approach in pop music but Mm. the way how they do it I mentioned like a social realist approach to songwriting before and on a song like Separate Beds yeah which actually has a partner song I'll get to in a couple of moments See? 
this is what's so beautiful when you listen to the lyrics on this. It's written by craftsmen. This is not, oh, the lyrics just came to my head. And we're not talking about them using great big words. It's not like they're sitting no. there with a dictionary or a thesaurus. It's no. just they know how to get the perfect words to describe a situation that's in their head. And yeah. one thing that I've never sort of spoken about on this show, but it's a common thing in squeeze songs, is rhyme and meter. Yeah. And we get Difford who says, right, I've gone and written his lyrics. I don't know what Glenn is going to do with it. And I think that Glenn is very deliberately saying, right, I know how I want this to sound in terms of the rhythm. I mean, it, we take that for granted when we listen to a song. And certainly if you're a songwriter who's writing both, you consider that at the time. But mm. there's a song which we'll probably come to later, the one Jules Holland contribution, where he's just fitting in yeah. too many words on the one line. And it's just, I want to get this line out rather than... Yeah what absolutely works but we get tonight i take her from her parents yeah. i came along to her rescue so we get you know, crotchet for every syllable yeah. on the line i i mean normally i don't try to get to that level of brass and tacks in the description but it seems to be like a recurring thing in a lot of squeeze songs sure that, yeah they're, they're metrically perfect often when people give me lyrics to write music to but which has happened over the years mm. they're so metrically chaotic that you have to say i have to change these you have to say to the person sometimes they get a bit shirty but <laughs> the, but you know it's like how the first line has nothing in common metrically with the th second or the third or the fourth uh. and they've just it's just written you can't make anything that makes any sense out of it so you have to add words or takes take words away occasionally but yeah obviously christopher had written enough songs by himself i think he'd, he'd written a few dylan-y kind of songs to start with he knew enough to make them make sense for somebody who's going to write music for them that's really obvious when you i've never heard of any stories about glenn Tillerbrook having to chop and change or tweak them in any way but he has the luxury of being able to compose the music around Difford's lyric but he yeah. has enough faith in Difford as a lyricist to be able to say right I don't need to chop and change and Difford yeah. thinks even if his guitar is turned down and I refuse to believe it but, but, <laughs> Difford, but Difford will think like a musician when yeah. writing a lyric and Tilbrook will have enough faith to say you know how to tell a story I will write the music to yep. fit the lyric and for me as a singer as well I tried to think of a, a good example from this album. I kept coming back to songs from the other albums where you might get like a rhyming scheme where the rhyme would be on the second, fourth line of a verse mm. and maybe the first and third line on the verse. But quite often in a squeeze song, it'll be the first line and the second line rhyme. Boom, let's get rid of that. The third and yeah. the fourth line rhyme. Boom, let's yeah. let's do that. I mean, this song is not one of those examples, but I think no. there is one that we'll, we'll come to. But it's just what I'm trying to get at here is the meter and the rhyming schemes are very deliberate and that's why I think they are one of the great songwriting teams not just because yeah. of what they say but how they say it and everything's so deliberate and if they decide right, well we're going to start up a school for songwriting well you know I, I like to think that if I had a hope of being a songwriter it would be by learning from those guys yeah for sure look one thing that struck me because I hadn't heard this I mean I've got this album but I haven't you know, obviously I've moved on to other things when I played this song this is one of the the, the, the squeeze songs where I can really hear Crowded House right or late period split end probably more more likely because the beginning of this song if I just heard it on the radio and I'd forgotten who it was I think it was Message to My Girl that is such a fantastic comparison I completely yeah. get that yeah and, and when I first heard now this is a fantastic song that I've got no uh, yeah, history never repeats 
because I wasn't because Neil Finney was new to well he'd it, been playing guitar a little while but he wasn't a featured voice. When I first heard that on the radio, I thought that was Squeeze. So I think obviously Neil Finn's. We we discussed this before we started. Neil Finn has moved on to amazing things. He's his own voice a million times over. But I think those early songs are very influenced by Squeeze. And uh, I think probably his uh, vocal attack yeah. is borrowing something from Glenn Tilbrook as a singer as well. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's there's no doubt about it. I've never seen him. He always mentions the Beatles, and but he, again, his voice is like this hybrid. It's common. I think you even got it with Badfinger, Pete Ham. His voice is, you can't quite pinpoint who it sounds like. It's a bit of both. Mm. I suppose anybody who's grown up listening to the Beatles who's not one of the Beatles, is, <laughs> if you're going to sound like them, you're going to sound like a bit of both. But it's definitely there with Tillerbrook. It's that slight whine of Lennon with that melodic bounce right. of McCartney. Without the little Richard influence. Yeah, that's right. He's not a great screamer. He proved that when he tried to sing Soul on one of the later albums. So Divid had written quite a few songs over the years about sexuality yeah. and songs that may have had, in some cases, a preoccupation with wanking or yeah. you know, other sexual exploits. Separate Beds is sort of like a rarity, I think, in their yeah. canon, yeah. that it's really a sweet tale of first love that's so innocent. Yeah, it's about not shagging. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. they sort of want to, but they <laughs> yeah. sort of don't. But I like that it goes to other places as well. Yeah, it, that's right. Yeah. They, with just a couple of lines, you know everything about their background. Her mother didn't like me. She thought I was on drugs. Yeah. Uh, my mother didn't like her. She never peeled the spuds. So yeah. from those two lines, without explicitly saying it, we know, all right, okay, one of them is from this side of the tracks and the other one yeah. is from the other side of the tracks. But yeah. without being blatantly obvious, and it lines like she never peeled the spuds, I I'm just yeah. sort of thinking about every British situation, comedy or drama yeah. from that <laughs> period. And you just sort of wonder whether they spent a lot of time I'm watching the TV as well as reading books. But isn't that a classic example of instead of saying she was posh and I was common? Yes. It's a an incredibly subtle way and funny way of saying the same thing. Well, they, yeah, they exactly they projected onto the mothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you do. If you're young, that's how you see everybody is through the eyes of your parents. I think until you decide not to, until you decide that maybe they might be wrong, that it doesn't matter if somebody's from the you know the other side of the tracks. But you go and compare that to another song, Vicky Verky. Yeah, yeah. Listen to the music we spoke before about happy music with Dark Lurk, and it actually starts out saying like, oh yeah, this is going to be one of their shagging songs. Yeah. Uh, and so once again, we have the contrast of the bright sounding, but ultimately very dark lyric as it goes to the second half of the song, although with a sort of hopeful ending. And this this one, I guess, is it works as both a contrast to separate beds, but it's also a good companion piece for Up the Junction, because once again, we have a song about a couple and teenage 
teenage pregnancy, but yeah. unlike Up the Junction, where our protagonist is the girl leaves him for a soldier and you know, yeah. leaves him there with the bottle. You think, okay, by the time that the boyfriend gets out of jail because he's you know, been sent to jail for trying to, I think, was it rob TVs or something like that <laughs> to put food on the table? Mm. Uh, and, and so she had to abort, but they decide by the end of the song that they're going to give it another go. Yeah. Once again, I love the turn of phrase. It's the very British turn of phrase, but it's Chris Stifford's articulate turn of phrase where he says, with her hair up in his fingers, the fish and chips smell lingers. <laughs> Under amber street lamps, she holds the law in her hands. Yeah. And it's suggestive without being British music hall dirty. It's not nudge, nudge, wink, wink, but no. it's so clever. She holds the law in her hands. It's taking yeah. a different phrase and turning it into something very, very different. But once again, it's setting the mood. You can see that couple there feeling each other up on the bench. And you know, sorry to any listeners out there who probably think we shouldn't be having this conversation, but I'm just we're just talking about a song, you know. So yeah. Um, well, look, it's like it's life. It's especially life in that kind of well, working class or lower middle class time with those people and it's just truth you know it's sex was kind of hardly spoken about it was done a fair bit but I think he found a way to talk about it that wasn't particularly I would, uh, not dirty or sexist or anything it was yep. just I mean you know if you look at the pulling muscles from Michelle it's the, it's a very similar kind of thing I want to come back to that in a moment yeah sure uh, just, just one last thing I wanted to finish up about this song and yeah. I know that we said uh, yeah, Beatles comparison yeah. Lame. Oh, if you're going to compare them overall as a band, but I'm wondering whether Difford took any inspiration from Penny Lane with that mm. great line for a fish and finger pie. It was years yeah. before I knew what that actually meant. But well, look, um, it might be literal because what people used to do uh, was go and get a takeaway fish and chips and smooch while they're eating fish and chips. So it, uh, obviously, it can be taken two ways, but it could just be literally that he had fish and chips because oh. he's mentioning the chips as well. He's not. <laughs> He's not just mentioning the fish. So it, it could be a memory. Oh, no, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily thinking about the fish and chips that uh, they, that Chris Difford writes about in Vicky Verky, but just yeah. more about the fact that uh, when he uses a line like, she holds the law in her hand. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder if it's inspired by for fish and finger pie in... Penny, yeah. Penny Lane and so you sort of think well McCartney wasn't necessarily a social realist writer like maybe the way how Ray Davies was he tried occasionally wasn't that whole idea before they sort of decided now we'll do Sgt Pepper weren't they going to make this album about life in Liverpool and if they yeah. carried on with a whole album full of songs that were like Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane that would have mm. been really an interesting album and I yeah. I think they could have had it in them I mean In My Life was yeah. a great start but yeah yeah. Oh, you know, I don't Sergeant, know what happened. Sergeant I don't Pepper's know what happened no, there. Yeah, it's oh yeah. It, look, it's Sergeant Pepper's. It's, you know, we're not going to knock that. Uh, but it just, <laughs> no, just, that's another one of those lines because it could just mean that she. Well, I think it does mean that she holds the power in her hands that to either make it a good night for him or a bad night for him. Right. You know? <laughs> or or the law is a euphemism for. What I can't say on this family-friendly show. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's. I mean, that's the beauty of many lyrics is that you can sort of take them. Like, because if I, I guess if you're saying that to somebody literally, it means they have they have control. I suppose she does.
lips move to pulling muscles from his shoulder. It's really just a dirty holiday story, really, isn't it? But it's, again, just so packed with detail. And as somebody who spent his very early years going to places like this, not old enough to experience things like this, but certainly experiencing chalets and muscles and arcades and fat ladies. And so is this are, like the, the Butlins holiday camps we keep here? Yeah, yeah, look, there were two different there was butlins and pontons and pontons were sl- slightly more upmarket but they were both re- what they both really were was prisoner war camps oh. um, <laughs> you thanks know, for bringing the tone of the show down shane because <laughs> in fact a lot of people used to call butlins butlets you know every shallow had a speaker in it and you get woken up by revali at six o'clock in the morning and you have to go out and start doing these activities you know you couldn't sleep in imagine if you're a man who's been working in a sheffield steel work six days a week and then you get to go like for a week in a year holiday and as soon as you get there you get woken up at six o'clock by a whistle and say wakey wakey everybody and just such a memory for me kids love it of course they don't care you know but the whole thing with butlins and pontons was to keep people occupied at all times and not to let them be the idle working class and just lie around and do nothing so the whole song is set in that world yeah I think that the man in the song uh, I think the protagonist is a red coat which are the people that work at the holiday camps they get the first pick of all the birds that turn up every two weeks yeah behind the chalet the holiday's complete well it is for her but for him it's just turnaround It'll probably happen again in a week or two weeks' time. It's just what happened. It's that world. See, look, I had gone and bought into the common conception for many years that this song was about wanking, you know, pulling muscles from the shell. And then in prep for this episode, I'm sort of really having a read of the lyrics and thinking, oh, no, it's more about sex, isn't it? You know, made Marion on her tiptoe feet. If you're wanking, she ain't there. Right, and, and, and I think someone had gone and said that the holiday's complete not because you're having a wank behind the shed, because you can have a you wank know, anywhere. That's uh, right. You know, I mean, aside from the lyric, which is obviously a playful look at a holiday dalliance mm. with a bit of extra detail, you know, <laughs> um, it, the, the chord sequence is uh, right. It's just it's, it's what they do a lot. The, the verses are complex. And then it's the same with the next song. I mean, it's a real one-two punch, isn't it? These, this and the next song, but the very tricky verse sections and then really quite simple chorus sections. I think the secret to the success, first of all, from pulling muscles, and we'll get to another nail in my heart shortly, yeah. but I think what is part of the success of pulling muscles is the bass line on yeah, the song. Yeah. So that, that's John Bentley on this album? I think so, yeah. yeah. They're playing A minor, but yeah. with a dropping bass line over each bar or, or so. Yeah. And his bass playing, that makes it sound probably more complex than it really is. Yeah. And I'm absolutely crazy about what they do with it here. And it's if you're listening to it for the first time, you can't predict where they're going to go next. And that's the level of complexity. It's not like yeah. it's... Uh, I don't necessarily think it's in the prog element like no, what XTC like were that. doing it. No. But it's certainly a song that your early pop guitar player is not going to be able to play or certainly your first-time listener is going to be able to predict where it was. I mean, yes, obviously we get pleasure hearing a song and being able to think, oh, yeah, I knew you were going to go there, but yeah. well, I take great delight in being able to think, oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. Wow, that's a great turn of phrase. Oh, yeah. And that's what makes it so exciting, I think. It's this. nice to be surprised. I mean, yes. again, I think to bring back the name again, it's somewhat in the Bacharach tradition in that way that – 
Bird Baccarat would often mess around with meter and really odd chord changes and still make it sound like a pop song, which is the skill because anybody can whack together a whole bunch of strange chords and make one of the bars in 3-4 and the next bar in 5-4. You can, if you know what you're doing, you can do that. It's whether you can turn it into a pop song or not. <laughs> right, that is the trick. The other thing I like about this song is in the chorus, Tilbrook just whacks this. I think I think you're right. It's the A minor chord, yep. and he just stays on that chord, whereas everybody else changes through the chorus. It actually shouldn't work because they clash it a couple of times. It just keeps going all the way through that chorus, and it's a it's a neat trick. It's what I call an ear tickler. It, it makes you think, <laughs> oh, very clever. I don't even know if it was that big a hit. I know it was a single, so I remember seeing a clip of it, but um, I don't think either of the two sing- songs were actually really big hits. They might have got been top 20 in England or something. But... I don't think there were hits here. I mean, as no. I said at the start of the show, Tilbrook commended us for having dumped them after Cool for Cats. Certainly, you know, whenever I went to see Tilbrook live, everyone knew every word to this song. Yeah. Oh, yeah, their fans are their fans. They really, I think they sort of hit their peak as far as hit singles go. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's lasted. The song still sounds amazing. I guess we could say this about Squeezes. Songs are deceptively simple. You listen mm. to it and you think, if you're not a musician, you can still listen to it, you still enjoy it, and you hum along with it. And this is yeah. a very singable, hummable song. Yeah, for sure. But when we're listening to this as musicians, we're thinking, well, where did you pull that from? And yeah. actually, the other thing I sort of just thought about, and I'm coming back to the bass line, as well as the chord structure in the verse, is it's very mathematical. And yeah. I, I don't know, maybe on the one hand, you should say, just enjoy the song for what it is. But boom, 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 and that's what makes it very squeezy to me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's that combination of accessibility and cleverness, mm. which I think I think most of my favourite bands have that in one way or another. I like my obscure stuff as much as anybody, but sure, you've got to be in the mood for some things. I can listen to Squeeze anytime, really. Mm. Uh, if, uh, if they come on the radio, which is rare. If they do, it's cool for cats, but... Uh, you know, when they do, it's always a, or if they come up on the, on shuffle or something, so it's a nice pleasure. To... So maybe we ought to start a petition, get pulling muscles from a shell played on radio. It's a really innocent song, we promise. Yeah. <laughs> then again, in an era where where they're singing songs like "fuck you" on top mm. forty radio, then you know this is this probably is very innocent. Well, it is in a way. I mean, because there's so much cynicism in all that stuff. Um, it's not innocent at all. It's completely thought out and aimed at a certain somebody who wants to be naughty or... They're not going nudge, nudge, wink, wink. They're, no. just, they're just telling a story. Yeah. I just think it's probably not great to spend too much time begrudging young people's music, except if you if you know how it's made and why it's made, it's hard not to be cynical either. Bands like this and in this era, it's probably between, sort of, really between 63 and 83. It's never been the same since as far as rock music goes, I don't think, or, or, or what you might consider pop or rock. Sure. Probably because there was plenty of money around and so... Nobody was under any pressure, really, to come up with the good straightaway or hits or whatever. I mean, there was pressure, of course, but it was just different. They were given three or four albums to develop and yes. you know, lots of different factors and of why it's not the same now. It's why we have an Ed Sheeran now rather than an Elvis Costello, I think. It's just a different time and the requirements of artists are different now. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 122 with a couple of old men. <laughs> 
Yeah, we've heard it all, Sonny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know what a song you call that, a song. That's the problem, isn't it, though? Because I think the more music you hear, especially if, like you, we're not overly old, but we're familiar with most of the errors. Once you've heard a lot of stuff, you start hearing where everything comes from. And it's hard to sort of take it for what it is because it's you know exactly what where they've got that bit from on that bit and just go ah oh, you know your own history so it gets in the way of enjoying things sometimes The yeah. second song in the album. And we're not doing the song by song no. thing, but this is a one two punch. And I sort of think that this was, in a way, a very brave move because this is a great album, mm. but I think that their first two songs on the album were the strongest ones. And you would sort of think, right, well, we might even start off with the first single. Isn't Separate Beds after that too? A separate Beds is the third one, but I. Was yeah, that no, a that's. And it's not a single, but it's a, it's a pretty strong tune. <laughs> oh, look, there's nothing I dislike on this album. Mm. But I think that that is a, a great one, two, three punch. It's uh, funny. I was, I was, when I was listening to it, I was thinking, because when, when Far Fisa Beat came on, I, I remember it not being a, a track I loved when I used to love this album, when I used to thrash it in yep. my bedroom when I was you know 20. Listening to it, I was walking and I was listening to it today and I thought, this is so precise, this song. It's so, I actually really like it now. It's not a great song particularly. And it's not one of their great classics, but it's just so well put together and it rocks like hell and it, it's so tight. And, and I, you know, I, I admire it more now than I did then. So another nail in my heart. Yeah. This is a great song about infidelity. I wouldn't necessarily say that the narrator is unreliable, but no. he is certainly someone who doesn't understand what's the big deal. Okay, well, I cheated. Okay, well, she's up and left me, but really, yeah. is it the worst thing in the world? He's like, mm. uh-oh, I fucked up. Now I'm going to pay for it. Yeah. What's the big deal? Now i got to listen to crappy songs of sorrow at the, at the piano bar uh, and I love that line I want to be good is that not enough that's right he's, he's, lot, not, lot, he's not taking ownership of, uh, no. of what he's done that's a very young man kind of thing isn't it though I think it's right I think we all I, thought, I, think, I think we all have that oh what did I do kind of thing <laughs> when, when we're 18 or 20 or 21 I think you know what's the big deal I think it's clever really because it takes a bit of self-knowledge to write something like that because if, if you write that it means that you've thought about it and mm. it doesn't mean you believe it it means you've thought about it and you think well that's a bit of a silly thing to think the whole song's got that vibe about it hasn't it it's like it, it does and to come up with the bleeding obvious it, it just melodicizes like anything and it rocks like anything just taking away from the song for the moment I know that a song shouldn't be sold by its film clip a song stands in its own <laughs> and this one yeah. certainly does but have you seen the film clip for this yeah no for a long time I remember Jules Holland with it. he's got a cigar in his mouth or something uh, yeah, I think he has a cigar in his mouth in just about every other song not this one <laughs> alright okay so it features the band minus Jules playing on a set 
and we see shots of Jules Holland pushing an upright piano through right, the street. Uh, yes, it's like he's trying to make his way to the session, and it's interspersed with bits where the whole band uh, sitting at a bar or, or standing at the bar, and Jules Holland's behind the bar. He's the he's the bartender and giving them right. their drinks, and they're just dancing around, and and that's all on the chorus. But the main part of it is them playing on the set, and towards the very end of the song, he pushes the piano onto the set, he's got it off the street, and then there's that final glissando. Yeah, yeah. And it's just such a clever moment. It, the visuals don't really sell the song, but it's just such a lovely visual moment. You think, okay, this has been thought about it, and even if the band didn't come up with the idea, whoever did probably told them, and they thought, yeah, we can live with that. That's a, yeah, that's yeah. a good idea for a clip. I wonder if um, they already knew that he was leaving at this stage, and it might have been a bit of a backhanded comment about that, because he did leave pretty well soon after this was put out. Um, it certainly wasn't on the next one. Yeah, that's for sure. I don't know like whether album three and he was out so you said that you read the biography oh you read chris stifford's biography yeah i mean because he came back a few yeah. years later so obviously there was no maliciousness no at the no. time but what did jules want to do oh, i think he just wanted to play boogie woogie and like he gets to do it on this song it's a great piano solo actually and what he's right. best at i think he realized that squeeze were always going to be a band that would do all kinds of different things and he really just wanted to do one thing, which yep. is not hasn't been true really. He's he's become a guy that can. He's obviously more interested in roots music and jazz and blues and. Yep. But, Although but, fair play to him, I mean he's been doing that later show for yeah. years and years, and he's prepared to yeah. give a voice to all these other bands which have nothing to do with jazz and blues. He would have thought that he might have no. decided right. Well, I've got the name. I'm going to champion that. Didn't he do a documentary, a he, jazz and blues documentary? I'm trying to. He's done a few. He, he did. He's done one about London music. It's on YouTube. That's really good and he did one about new orleans mainly what i remember about that is lee dorsey coming out sweeping a broom and singing working in a coal mine um, oh. as a small child i dreamt about playing in a band i did and it's a bit of a coincidence because they're on the show tonight ladies and gentlemen squeeze let's talk a little bit about some other songs on yeah. this album we already said before that the whole beatles comparison yeah they've molded in the classic singer songwriter thing but there are three songs on this album that reminds me of what their peers were doing. And I'm not saying mm. there's plagiarism or theft or whatever, but obviously they're all hanging out, yeah. all listening to each other. And there were maybe sounds rather than necessarily songs that sounded, or production techniques, or maybe turns of phrase that sounded really cool. So the first one, If I Didn't Love You, yeah. makes me think of Jesus of Cool, Labor of Lust era, Nick Lowe. Sure. Yeah. It must have something as much to do, and this is something we haven't sort of mentioned yet, but whereas a lot of bands, they have two great singers who sing in harmony, but what separates Difford and Tilbrook from the rest is you've got Difford singing maybe two or three octaves in unison. Yeah. from Glenn Tilbrook and that was really really distinctive and I yeah. think that's something I, I don't think Nick Lowe ever sort of did that but there's something about his voice that reminds me of 
Chris Difford and this song, this something, this tough song. Yeah. We're not talking about Cruel to be Kind, Nick Loeb, uh, maybe no. Breaking Glass. Yep, for sure. That, yeah, Jesus is a cool era. L- little Hitler and all those kind of slightly quirky when he was really trying to be quirky. It didn't last very long. I think it's, you want to become more of a just a classic kind of straight pop songwriter, really. But Well, I guess having... Johnny Cash is your father-in-law, I mean, yeah. sort of going to go into that songwriter mode at some straighten up, straighten up the act a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he wrote "Endless Grey Ribbing," hoping that Johnny Cash would record it. I think, yeah, I think he actually did. Yes, Eventually, I think, eventually. Yeah. I think it was it took a while, but yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely got that vibe about it. And that was all over the shop in England at that time. That slightly twisted humour as well, you know, the, right? You know, the jumping record thing. Just, you can imagine Nicolo doing that. Mm, mm, completely. Yeah, it's, He sings a line about us. Uh, I've got lyrics in front of me, but about the record scratched. And as soon as he sings that, the, uh, he sings, "If I didn't, if I, if I, if I like about um, ten times." times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you hadn't caught the line, you'd think, "What are you doing that for? It's weird." And then, and then at the end, he, he he has two scratches. He kind of goes, "If I, if I didn't, didn't." That's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very quirky. And the song itself, so, you know, uh, they, they probably sabot- sabotaged themselves by doing that with that song because it might have been a little bit more of a. You, you know, know what? I, I think that the British top 40 of the time, I mean, when you think about some of the bands like, I don't know, Adam and the Ants, for instance. I mean, well, sure, yeah. I think the, the British top 40 buying public were quite accepting of quirk. I mean, obviously, maybe the, I don't know, they weren't calling it alternative rock at the stage, but obviously, you know, that strain were listening and quite accepting of that. But I think even the top 40 buying public in Britain and certainly in Australia were quite happy to accept something that was a bit quirky as long as there was a great melody and whilst I don't compare this to Adam and the Ants melodically or, or anything like that but maybe that level of quirk certainly a public that could accept things like Dex's Midnight Runners everything right. from anything like that and the British were good at that and it seemed to have um, seems to have disappeared a little bit now as far as quirkiness goes I think that's maybe it'll come back I don't know but yeah, I mean that's right. They, certainly, that period, nobody was trying to take themselves too. I'm sure they all took what they did seriously, but I don't think anybody was taking themselves overly seriously. Mm, mm. Yeah, which is, uh, I think, it's very healthy. Yeah. You need a bit more. Uh, well, you actually have to look around and see. You know, I mean, I think there's too much at stake for people these days. You know, the culture, the subculture for that is elsewhere. I think mm. they're interested in other things. I don't know what, but anyway. Yeah. So you're right. That song does kind of sit in that kind of subgroup that you know that slightly quirky well i got another couple of songs that would fit in that slightly quirky sort of vein but for different reasons so the second song that i think works as a good companion piece to a contemporary act is here comes that feeling discussed XTC who were obviously in love with older pop yet yeah. definitely had a more contemporary sound for the time particularly sure. in the Barry Andrews era yeah. and here comes that feeling really seems to me like 
they might have been listening to what XTC were doing in that period. And the drumming seems like Lavis is taking a, a note. It's very heavy, taking a note out of what something that Terry Chambers yeah. might have done. I'm not necessarily saying it's you know, conscious, but it just brings that to mind. And you get uh, like a an expression in the song, egg on the shirt of my heart. Is that a yeah. line that Andy Partridge might have written? I like to think. I think was. so, yeah. I mean, what's this album contemporary with drums and wires, really, isn't it? I think. Yes, I guess it would, would have been that same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, it's not it's not so much the keyboards anyway, really. Is it? It's more the lyric and the the drum feel and. I don't think it particularly sounds like XDC. I think oh. it just has, might be something that was in the air at the time. But yeah, you could be right. Mm. I, I, I didn't think it when I heard it again. Well, let's, I'll run one more by you, see what you think of this. And uh, I think I'm a go-go. Well, it's probably it sounds like something off Cool for Cats, <laughs> you know. It's that feel. It's uh, it's not. It's almost Latin, isn't it? It's, I don't know. I don't... I'm placing it in the Baroque pop camp. Yeah. And this song sounds to me actually like someone who hadn't actually recorded the album in this style. And I'm talking about the aforementioned Elvis Costello. This sounds to me like a song that could have fit on Imperial Bedroom. Yeah, yeah. It couldn't fit on this year's model or Armed Forces, but maybe. Elvis was paying attention. I mean, he, he produced the next album, for goodness sake. So Yeah, that's right, yeah. Probably. Oh, he was a fan of Chris Difford's. I, uh, that's one thing I wanted to run by you. I mean, you know, like, they obviously had a big hit with Cool for Cats, and then you'd think the natural move would be to let Difford or get Difford to sing couple more on this one and they didn't do that i think it might have been a good move not to do that because it's a kind of gimmicky voice in a way he only sings part of this one well he sings all through it as his lower octave harmony i say that with inverted he couldn't actually sing harmonies he could only sing an octave lower than (laughs) yes yeah anyway yeah so he only sings one whole song by himself and it's probably smart that they didn't actually feature him more even though he'd so giving him that big hit. I suspect that he was quite happy doing what he did, and he probably didn't want to be the focus yeah, of attention. Yeah, probably right. And given yeah. that the band actually sort of hit their strides at this stage in England for a while, and in America to some extent for a little while, they probably didn't need to put anything out with him as the lead vocalist, no. as a singer. And really, when you've got a, a voice like Glenn Tilbrook's, why would you well, not course. put that on a top forty so you, single? You got you got to put yourself into the place of a clothier record executive who's seen some money come in from a somebody singing a song and. I suppose the classic example would be Diana Ross with the Supremes because she was the worst singer in the Supremes. And uh, I guess because, well, for various reasons, she was pushed to the front. I could have just seen them under pressure from some idiot at at A&M saying, get him to sing a few more, let's get another hit out, you know, which didn't happen. So it's uh, there to be commended if that happened, that they didn't. Well, there were a million mans around at the time too, weren't there? I mean, you know, I find myself disparaging the 80s in in lots of ways. by remembering all the rubbish that seemed to happen sort of more towards the mid-80s and towards the end. And it was just awful, and it sort of drove me to playing the blues. But I also remember how amazing it was earlier on and just how much, especially from England, how much incredible stuff that was coming out that was just doing my head in how good it was. 
How did you um, afford to buy that record collection? <laughs> well, I, I was working. I, yeah. I used to buy one or two albums a week, buying smartly and going to secondhand places. Right. Um, and I still have most of them, I think. I didn't. I haven't sold very much, so I've still got all my Dexies and XTC and Squeeze and Joe Jackson and all, all these things that I, you know, The Clash. They were all just putting a lot of a lot of stuff out, and they were all, it was all interesting. Not all brilliant. I mean, they some of them overreached. You know, that's to be expected when you're making one album a year or more. Right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, at what stage did it become the thing to say, right, we're putting out an album every two years, which was mm. the antithesis of the '60s era. We need two albums a year and half a dozen singles, and yeah. you need to tour to promote them. I know uh, it's amazing that p- people could do that, and uh, I think you can only keep it up for. So long you know, people have only got so many songs in them i think the, the gaps that some people take are ridiculous but mm. i think two a year is too much i think it isn't if you're not writing the songs it's it's fine if somebody else is writing the songs for you mm. which is but, what happens with the, the country acts in america you know they, they churn them out because they're not writing the songs yeah, or you get a social experiment like what king gizzard and the lizard wizard did last year with putting in five albums i think I'm yeah there's another new band that's interesting you know that's they're doing interesting things it's mm-hmm. just so, to prove us wrong yeah. oh, well me wrong you know, you, you <laughs> Yeah, probably a bit more. Yeah, it's it's how it should be. It's probably going back to what it should be. You know, a massive cottage cottage industry where people aren't sort of under the. I mean, you know, there were some great A and R men through the 60s, 70s, and 80s who probably we wouldn't have the things that we have without them. But they've also been responsible for some awful stuff as well. I had a couple of notes here about a couple of songs that I thought were misfires. We've already gone and said Farfisa beat. Wrong side of the moon. I'm not really big on Jules' song either. It's it's okay, but I see why they shoved it on the end. Like it wasn't a B-side. Although, yeah, yeah. Mind you, I think I've sort of read that they had a ton of B-sides. And yeah. Like if they'd gone and put out a CD collection, and there may well be something that they released just to their fans mm. of the two, three hundred B-sides that they recorded. I, I think yeah. sometimes you can get a band that has some gems, and you think, how did this get left off? Yeah. But by its virtual status as a novelty song, I think "Wrong Side of the Moon" would have been a great B-side. Side, you know, good yeah. song that you're happy to hear. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, does it work on this album? Yeah, maybe not. But as you were saying before, he wanted to do blues and boogie woogie, and who knows? Maybe he does that with his uh, rhythm and blues orchestra. Don't know. I doubt it. Somehow, it's like definitely of its time. It, it sounds kind of like a bit desperate to me. It sounds like. <laughs> I'm going to write this song. Did he write it? Yes, yes, I think yeah. he did. As a whole, that album's it is as you know my favourite. Like like we said before, it's my favourite as as a whole Squeeze album, but it, it doesn't have my favourite Squeeze song on it. I don't know how common that is, but it's. I mean, I love. I think I'm Go Go. I love Separate Beds, Pulling Muscles from Michelle, Another Nail in My Heart. But I know. I remember when I got East Side Story. I just. I actually thought it was a masterpiece. Yes. And, uh, I'm not sure if it is now, but I definitely think it is. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I'll have another. I've listened to it. It's been a while since I played it. I mean, I hear Tempted all the time because 
you know I, I often play it to people who don't know it and I, I say listen cop this and then it, it always affects people the same way it did to me when I first heard it it's just a classic Diffident Tillerbrook song with great detailed lyrics again about chuffing off for a bit of a dirty weekend I think he certainly shoved his voice on a few hit singles in his time old Paul Carrick but I sort of think Paul Carrick and I'm thinking the living years yeah, were yeah. tempted <laughs> yeah well sorry we can put the living years to the dustbin of time sorry any Mike and the Mechanics fans right there, but <laughs> yeah. you know, tempted wow what a voice yeah plus he sang How Long you know that's a great single yeah. uh, when he, from an earlier era it's another one of those songs that just seems to just fall out of the air and I'm trying to think what album did he come back for was it some fantastic place that he came back for yeah he did. He sang another song did he Loving You Tonight yes that's right yep, which is he did too. nice it's a nice kind of it's not vintage no it could have come being on, on one of his um, solo albums it's one of the it's a Kind of generic kind of soul tune, really. I think they wrote it for him. Mm. So I don't think they wrote "Tempted" for Paul Carrick. I think no. Well, that uh, was Elvis Costello's suggestion. Hey, why don't yeah. you give it to him? And those lines, you know, that second verse where you hear yeah, that yeah, low, that low vo- vocal. People keep on riding, and we yeah. that. that was Elvis. Yeah, that's right. I didn't realize well, that. And plus, Tillbrook sings uh, the line before that. I'm at the airport, the car park, the Barish right. Carousel. That's actually Tillbrook singing that part. Yeah, well, well that, so, that much was obvious, but I saw, yeah, right, I saw yeah, with okay. that low vocal, oh, yeah, that's going to be uh, Chris Difford. And it yeah. is in the film clip, but on the record, it's Elvis Costello. Yeah. yeah, I think it's actually, when I first heard it, it was fairly obvious to me. When Difford sings low, it's got this kind of rasp to it, whereas when Elvis goes down there, it's full. Yes. It's, yep, uh, so, yeah, some fantastic place and tempted to my two. If I, if I had to pick two, which I never have to do, thankfully. <laughs> if, I, if I had to, I'd, I'd pick those two. But I still well, like if, this up. If you were asked to go sing in a tribute band, a squeeze tribute band, mm. you can have any two songs you want, Shane. What other two yeah. you are going to sing? Boom, there well, you go. Well, I think there's I could a, do a, a fairly choice. good job on Tempted. It's in my bailiwick, you know, as far as singing goes. Poor character from Sheffield, like I am. So we obviously Ooh. have exactly the same voice. <laughs> Everyone yeah. in Sheffield <laughs> sings the same, don't they? <laughs> they do. Well, Joe Cocker, Paul Carrick and me, we, that's it, you know. But no, Birds uh, of a feather. I'd have a bash at that. I'm not sure if I could, I might cry if I sang some fantastic place. Yeah, I'd probably have a go at Tempted and Pulling Muscle from Michelle, because that'd mm. be fun to sing, I think. Good. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a braver man than I am. Well, or, I mean, my, I wasn't given the opportunity, because I misunderstood the song to begin with. There was a, a song, Touching Me, Touching You. That oh. was their wanking song. <laughs> I mean, there's been a few wanking songs, haven't there? It's a, for, for a subject that's meant to be not... Turning Japanese was a wanking song. Well, they've denied it, but I think, <laughs> they're, just, I think they're just playing with their heads. I think it's probably about time that we finish this up. Any final thoughts on this album? Yeah, people should have a listen to it, and people who want to learn how to write pop rock songs should use it as a bit of a primer, I think, because it's, it's almost, well, just squeezed generally, I think, but this album just hangs together. And the other thing I was going to say, the production between, I know John Wood did both of them, but the sound of the albums between Cool for Cats and this one was so much better, much kind of just sparkled a bit more, still keeping that nice warm drum sound. And Well, um, I'm glad that they recorded this in 1980 rather than in 
1985, 1986 when they had the reunion because just yeah. imagine you know, when they decided, oh, well, let's do what other 80s bands are doing. And yeah. they could have had these great songs and they would have been mad. I mean, look, they learned their lesson because by the time they got to Babylon or not, they found yeah. their pop-loving mojo again and it sounds yeah. like an album that they recorded in 
the other thing that I do that I've never exposed to the world, which is my obsession with people like Bert Jansch and John Renborn and oh, people like that. Yeah, so that's available digitally, not in any hard. So you can you can listen to it on Spotify or or Apple Music or there. If you go to Green South Records website, you can download it there. Mm. It's called The Gardener. The Gardener. Yeah, so it's very when much. You, uh, when you mentioned Bert Jansch, now I'm yeah. all over it. That's it. Yeah, I want to yeah. hear that. Yeah, it's uh, look. I recorded it right where I'm sitting now with one microphone, and it's meant to sound like a garden acoustic guitar sitting right in front of you singing. And then I just embellished it here and there with little bits of stringed instruments that just to what I call again ear ticklers. So yeah, I think if you like that kind of thing, you might find some stuff on there that's to your taste. So is this all original material, Shane, or are you doing your interpretations of Bert Jansch, John mm, Redbourne tunes? No, it's mainly original. There's two covers. I do a, a version of. The John Hyatt and Ry Cooter song, Across the Borderline. Oh, yes. And, and a version of uh, Sitting Limbo, the Jimmy Cliff tune. But yes, uh, the covers aren't of that. But the, the originals are sort of in that vein. But, but it's it's just from a time when I was so, uh, I was first separated from my ex and yep. I was here by myself. And I just so I started doing it for something to do. And it just I put one little clip up on Facebook and it got a massive response. And Dave from Green South contacted me and said, if you've got any more of this stuff, I'll be interested in putting it out. And that's how it happened sometimes. Wow. So yeah. Google it, folks. Shane Pacey, The Gardener. Yeah. Uh, and if you either download it from that website or bring it up in Spotify, if that's your uh, choice of listening to music. And now I'm just sort of thinking that we have an informal commitment that yourself, myself and Jeff Perlman will do an episode talking about our favorite blues albums. But I'm thinking mm. post that, I'd love to discuss a Pentangle album with you. I've been, sure. waiting, I've been yeah. waiting to find someone who really loves their music. So uh, I think we'll maybe do a Bert Yanch solo yeah. album and a look, Pentangle album. Yeah, look, well. um, I, I have every Pentangle album here on I've vinyl. No doubt. So. <laughs> so, yeah. when I, look, when I was about seven or eight years old, my older sister, who normally only exposed me to classical music, but her one yeah. exception was English folk, and yeah. we had a copy of Basket of Light, and oh, I yeah. played that album to death. So Yeah, they were amazing. Yeah. There's been nothing like them since. There was nothing like them before. You know, and the, the rhythm section swung like a bitch. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and, Danny Thompson is yeah, one of yeah. my heroes. That's a bass player, my God. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So I'm happy to talk about that till the cows come home. Right, well, we'll be doing that you know, a few months down the track That's, on this very podcast. Sounds good to me. So let's just get by through the housekeeping things. If you want to get in contact, you can email me at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. You can join the Facebook group, going facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album if you wish to hear me blathering on about films in particular music related films then i'd love it if you could join us on my other podcast with my great friends tim merrill and bernard stickwell we talk about music-related films on a show called See Here. That's S-W-H-E-A-R. This month of March, we're going to be talking about fantastic documentary, very important one, one that a lot of people say was the nail in the coffin of the 60s. I'm talking about Gimme Shelter, the documentary about the Stones at Altamont. But we'll be talking about probably the whole Rolling Stones filmography because it seems like every time they went out on stage, there was a camera pointed at them. There's a ton of Rolling Stones films. So we'll be talking about that on this month's episode of See Here. Probably should just briefly talk about what we're going to be doing in April of 2019. 
Now, the original plan was that I was going to be joined by music and film writer Heather Drain, who's also been on the show a couple of times in uh, recent months, and it's a pleasure to have her back. And the original plan was that I'd invited her on and Jeff Perlman to talk about Todd Rundgren, a couple of Todd Rundgren albums. But Heather went and wrote me back and said, you know what, I've had a change of heart. I really, really, really want to talk about the kinks, and which is a nice companion piece to this. So rather than discussing the album that it would be 50 years old this year, which is Arthur, we're going to go for an album that's 49 years old this year because an album we're both crazy about. Uh, that's Lola versus Powerman and the Money Ground Part 1. If you've not heard this album, you know Lola, you know Ape Man. So two really iconic songs from the kinks on that album but we'll no doubt be discussing about where they went from this what had happened before this a very important album uh, an album that ray davies was possibly very bitter about the state of the music industry because it did him over and never piss off a great lyricist because they make you pay for it so we'll be talking about that album with Heather, I haven't sort of conferred with Jeff Perlman as to whether he wants to take part in talking about the kinks. He's welcome to do so. Hopefully he'll join us. But if he wants to join us the following month, another great writer about film, Kerry Fristo, will be joining me to pick up the slack that Heather dropped in talking about Todd Rundgren. So in May, we'll be talking about Something Anything by uh, Todd Rundgren. So Jeff Perlman, if you're listening to this, you're welcome to join us for both months as well, if you wish, or just one, or if you say... No, just want to talk with the great Shane Pacey, then I'll wait till we're talking about the blues or Bert Yanch. Whatever. I'm so free and easy on this show. You can, you can tell I, I don't plan anything well. I'm rambling. So what I'm going to do now is say farewell. Thank you very much for joining in and listening to uh, this month's episode of Love That Album. It was 122. Next month will be episode 123, if my arithmetic is correct. So until next month, look after each other. Go listen to a Shane Pacey album. Go listen to a Bondi Cigars album. And just generally be nice to each other because the world is pretty fucked up at the moment. So please hug someone that you love and we'll catch you next month. All the best. Cheers. And you know it's too late to change your mind. When you've paid the price and come so far Just to end up where you are And you're still just across the borderline Up and down the Rio Grande Thousand footsteps in the sand Reveal a secret that no one can define What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money... Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. 
the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.